Uh, let me invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Job chapter 2. And we'll be looking at uh, verses 11 through 13 this morning. Uh, so we'll finish up chapter 2, and then starting in chapter 3, we find uh, Job just pouring out his heart in agony. And then we, we will wade through the counsel of his friends, and uh, which is the largest portion of the book of Job. We'll take that in larger chunks, but uh, we're going to look at really kind of the introduction to these three friends this morning that plays such an important part uh, in the book. So let me start reading in Job chapter 2, and I'll read in verses uh, 11 through 13. And again, it's our great joy and privilege to read from the inspired Word of God. Job chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all his adversity that had come upon him, they came each one with his own, from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Well, we have left Job devastated. Outwardly, he lost everything that he had. All of his wealth, all of his possessions, all of his camels and sheep, he lost it all. He went from being a prince to a pauper. And then he lost all of his children from a family man to having no heirs in his home. In chapter 2, he was sorely afflicted with a ghastly assortment of diseases that left him with constant gnawing pains from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, constant and severe itching that he had to use broken pieces of pottery to scrape to try to somehow alleviate the irritation. He had running sores that were so unsightly and repulsive he was abandoned by his relatives, ostracized by his wife, and from living in a very wealthy man's home, we find him now sitting outside the city on a pile of ashes at the city dump. This is a man whose life has been destroyed. An intense pain, all alone, abandoned, looking upon, people looked upon him as one cursed of God. And yet through it all, his faith 
did not fail. Shows the magnitude of the grace of God. As he expressed to his wife his faith, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And here we find that in the midst of all of this chaos, these terrible things, he has submitted his soul to the rule of Almighty God. We find that in this faith that he expressed to his wife, the underlying belief and conviction that God owes none of us anything, that all we have are mercy gifts of God, whether it be our wealth or whether it be our health, that we don't really have the right to claim it. We're not entitled to it. It's not something that we can claim is mine by right. But he acknowledged that it was all from God. Everything was from God. And if this mighty God, for purposes that we do not understand, this holy God, this wise God, this ultimately good and loving God should take it all away, I will trust him. He has the right to take it away. He has given it all to me. He can take it all away and I must not complain against God. I must not become bitter. We are obligated to worship God in good times and in bed, knowing that we deserve nothing as sinners but the wrath of God. We must learn to patiently trust God, our Heavenly Father's love, when we are living behind a frowning providence and we do not understand it. We just have to trust. And this is not a faith that grows from the soil of man's heart. This is a faith that must be planted from heaven. This is a bloom from God. To have this kind of faith in the midst of this kind of suffering. And we read at the end of verse 10, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is really an amazing statement because we know that our words are a window into our heart. As Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 12, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So if the heart is good, the words will be good. If the heart is bad, the words will be bad. And here we find the amazing testimony to this man's heart is that he did not sin with his lips because the lips speak out what fills the heart. So there was trust. There was faith, though he did not understand it. By the grace of God, Job's heart was submissive. It was humble. It was submitting to God. And because his heart was in line with the Lord, he was guarding his mouth so that he did not sin with his lips. See, whenever we speak out sinful words, 
It's always a reflection on the heart. And I think that's designed to teach us that to correct the words, to correct the lips, we must deal with the core issue of the heart. And at this point in Job's life, by the grace of God, he is trusting, submitting himself under these terrible circumstances that have come upon him. But now enter his three friends. And I want this morning to kind of focus on principles of friendship from this. Uh, There's a lot of bad things that these three friends do and say. But there's some good things. And I think as we talk about the body of Christ, we talk about the importance of loving one another, being a friend to one another. Some of the principles that we can glean from this may help us to become better friends more faithful friends to those around us. Well, let's look again at verse 11. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Again, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. Now, by this time, probably weeks have transpired since these afflictions came upon Job. More likely months. It takes time for these men to travel. They come from various places. Uh, It takes time for them to get their business in order so they can leave home to set their house in order to uh, accumulate the provisions that they need for a lengthy trip. So it takes time. And even later on in the book of Job, Job will say, Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in days when God watched over me. And the reference to months here suggests that when these three friends come and they finally have their exchange, their dialogue, which all could have taken place in one day, that Job had already endured months of this affliction. So Job's prestige in his own country had no doubt made him an international figure, and his friends came from uh, three different neighboring regions, apparently, to visit with him. These men, no doubt, are men of rank, educated men, men of influence, probably cultured men, full of etiquette, supposedly, and understanding. They were, they were men who were leaders within their community. Eliphaz from Teman is the, it's the clearest to identify where, where Teman is. Uh, if you go up to the top, Bildad from Shua, he's a Shuite. We don't know for sure where that area was. Some put it further down in Arabia, but it's probably close to Edom. Remember, Uz is basically identified, as I understand it anyway, with the general area of, of ancient Edom. If you drop down to the bottom of my uh, picture here, you have Zophar, which is a name, Namathite. We don't know for sure exactly where that is. Some have suggested it's 
down in that southern area. And then the fourth friend who'll show up towards the end of the book, Elihu, is a Buzzite. And that doesn't mean he buzzes around all over the place. But we don't know where Buzz is again, but it's probably down this region. So all these men, it took time for them to prepare to come to where Job lived in order to minister to him. Notice uh, back in verse 11, it says that at the bottom, they made an appointment together to come. So they knew each other already. They felt it would be better for the three of them to meet together to come and see their friend Job. But uh, why did they come? And again, this is a question. Obviously, they knew one another. They knew Job well. And so they speculate, some have speculated that maybe in the past these these four to five men had made a covenant of friendship, someone, somewhat like David and Jonathan had made, that for various reasons they had committed to help one another in time of need, possibly, we don't know. But whether there was a, a covenant like that made between them, there was certainly a strong bond of friendship. Possibly they were business partners. Maybe they were all members of the Edomite Better Business Bureau. So they had business dealings. They had connections with one another. They spent time with one another. But they come because they want to minister to their friend. By this time, his poverty, Job's pain, the abandonment, had drawn, had dragged on and on for many, many weeks with no sign of relief or hope in sight. So by the time they get to him, Job is enduring these circumstances, no doubt, for months. The reason why they came at the end of verse 11 is they want to sympathize with him and comfort him. His faith would be tested to the breaking point by their good intentions. But they come with the desire to sympathize and to comfort. They were genuine friends of Job. They love him. They want what's best for him. But sadly, as we know from the rest of the book, their bad theology made them more like tormentors, aggravating his mis misery and plunging him in, in an abyss of emotional, severe pain and turmoil. These three friends are definitely sincere. They are full of goodwill, but they end up being bad counselors. Job's friends are kind of like the physicians of the woman in the Gospels who had the hemorrhage for 12 years. She went to all these physicians. She paid out all of her money to receive help. And, and she only became worse. And that's like what these friends are going to do to Job. They mean well. They're acting out of what they think is right. But they're wrong and they don't see it, and Job will come out worse than when they began because of it. 
Good intentions to help other people are honorable. We need to help one another. We need to love one another. But without wisdom and truth from God, we will end up being sorry counselors who only increase the sufferings of the very ones we hope to help. Well, their response when they arrive is found in verse 12. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. So before we we analyze uh, some of the defects in these three friends with good intentions, let's look at some of the things that they do right. And this this is to their credit. When they first arrive and they lift up their eyes at a distance and they they see Job, they don't recognize him. And this is because he had been so disfigured by the boils that are all over his body. He's sitting alone. He's not at his normal place. Normally, if they would have arrived to the city, Job would have been sitting at the gate of the city because he was a man of of influence, a man of power, a man that all the younger people would come to listen to. But he's not there. He's outside the city in the ash dump. And when they don't recognize him, when they approach him and see the devastation of all of the disfigurement and the diseases that he's he's enduring, uh, they definitely show sympathy. To sympathize, which is one of their purposes in coming, means to identify and feel the pain of another. To feel with them. To feel pity or sorrow for someone else's affliction. Now, sympathy is good. And it's one of the worst circumstances of life to be the last one to get sick in your family. Because by that time, all the sympathy is gone. So the first one that gets sick, you know, everybody runs, oh, sweetheart, what what can we do to help? And is there anything I can get you? By the time you're the last one to get sick, it's just kind of like, get over it. So sympathy is good. It's a blessing. And these three friends come to sympathize with their friend. They sacrifice the time and resources to actually get up, leave their home, leave their cities, and travel to where Job is. That's a sympathetic heart. They were there in person. They actually showed up at the door or at the ash heap. Oftentimes, we fail in our friendship because we don't communicate, we don't reach out, we don't go. We may pray for them, but it's the friend that shows up. That's the friend that has a potential to minister. Someone once uh, defined a friend as one who comes when the whole world has gone. When everybody else is leaving you, the friend is the one who comes to you. That's a friend. Prosperity, it is said, begets friends. 
But adversity proves them. It proves who your friends are. The Good Samaritan actually stopped and helped the man who was in need, unlike the priest and the Levite that just walked quickly by. At great expense of time and resources, these three friends, like the Good Samaritan, came to do what they could to help their friend, to sympathize with him. And let us be that kind of a friend who's willing to go to minister. Their deeds certainly show their sympathetic heart. When they don't recognize Job in verse 12, they raise their voices and wept. And this could involve a certain cultural wailing that was traditional. But when they saw him, their hearts were moved. They raised their voices. They wept. They cried. They shed tears at seeing what had happened to him. They tore their robes, possibly as a, as a gesture to indicate that, that life, his life had been torn asunder, had been ripped apart with grief. And to, to share in that, they, they, again, from a cultural perspective, they, they tear their own robes to try to identify with their friend whose life had been torn open by the suffering. And then they threw dust over their heads towards the heaven, towards the sky, throwing dust over the head to fall on the head or throwing it directly on the head is oftentimes indicated as a mourning for someone who basically has died. Dust is symbolic of death. As we find in Genesis 3, you are dust and to dust you shall return. And to throw dust on the head is the feeling that a death has occurred. And I want to identify with the, with the death. And so they're, they're viewing their friend as if he was a dead man because obviously they viewed him having a, a, a disease that's not going to be healed, is a terminal illness of some kind. And so they're throwing dust on their head to again try to sympathize with their, their dear friend. Then in verse 13, they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, sitting on the ground, enduring the same circumstances as their friend, no cushion, no rug, no chair. They just sit on the ground with their friend, identifying, trying to show sympathy. Seven days is the standard time for mourning for the dead. And possibly, again, they believe that Job was basically a dead man in an incurable sickness. He's as good as dead. But they come with a compassionate, loving heart. They want to help. And you can see it in the way they act. You can also see it when people show up and they don't have a compassionate heart. You know, they're just there out of a sense of duty because there's no tear in their eye. There's no aching heart. There's no sharing in the sorrow. And though they mean well, their ministry and presence will be less effective than the one who comes with a sympathetic heart. 
But because we know the rest of the book, there's a certain shallowness to their sympathy. Outwardly, it's appropriate. Their hearts are certainly moved. But their, their sympathy is defective because of what they're thinking in their minds. As we know from the rest of the book, and again, I'm inferring this back here, is that though they come to their friend and they are grieved at his sorrow and all the pain that he's going through, they come with somewhat of a self-righteous spirit within them. They're saddened for their friend. But through the rest of the book, we will learn that they're looking down upon him because as they're trying to interpret how could their friend encompass or, or be afflicted with all of these diseases and pains and losses, and they're viewing themselves as being in health and being wealthy because they're not in the same spiritual condition as Job must be in. So it was a sympathy that they brought, but it was a sympathy that's rooted in their own superior goodness. It was out of sympathy that they tore their robes, but they really didn't tear their own heart in the sense of truly understanding what was going on because they didn't know. Their heart is more like the heart of the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 who stands back and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers and unjust and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And there's a sense in which their sympathy is being tainted with that idea of moral superiority. And it's going to greatly impact the counsel that they give to him. True sympathy sits in the ash heap knowing that but for the grace of God, there go I. True sympathy not only grieves and shares the pain of another, but it understands that we are no better, that only by God's mercy have I not received the fullness that I deserve for my sins. And it's out of this true sympathetic heart that understands that apart from God's wisdom and mercy that we do not understand, we could taste the bitterness of the dregs that our suffering friend is tasting. So in one sense, there's much to approve and to applaud in how they come to show sympathy, but there's also that underlying defect. Their attempt to show comfort in verse 13 can be seen by the fact that they come and they sit in silence for seven full days. Now again, to comfort someone means to ease the pain caused by their tragedy or loss. You ease the pain. When you comfort someone, you're wanting to lighten the suffering. That's what you do when you comfort. So they came and they sat in silence for seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him. Not a word. Now their silence, 
I think is interesting. Obviously, there is a role for silence when we go to uh, counsel or to minister to someone. I remember one time when I was in the hospital, uh, one of the older men in the church came to visit me, and I was just coming out of some anesthesia or some sleep or whatever, and I saw him sitting over in the corner, and he never said a word, but I saw him there, and it just blessed my heart because he was just there, and he didn't say anything. And then the next time I kind of came to, he was gone. But just his presence was powerful. Sometimes it's appropriate not to say anything, at least at the beginning of someone. You're just trying to identify with their pain and share it and lift it in some way. Just the presence is, is something that can grant healing mercies. It probably was due, their silence was due to the fact that they were so shocked by what they had just seen in their friend. They were struck dumb. They really didn't know what to say. I mean, oftentimes, how many times have we been in a situation where we really just don't know what to say? They were horrified. They were speechless. They're bewildered. And all that's understandable. When you're around someone that has gone through a tragic loss, sometimes you just don't know what to say. So periods of silence are certainly appropriate at times, but ultimately to be a comfort, we need to wisely and lovingly at the right time when the heart is receptive, encourage them with truth from God. This is, requires a lot of wisdom from the Lord. But the point that I'm emphasizing in verse 13 is that they are there. That's good. They are sympathizing with Him. That is good. But when it comes to comfort, they don't say anything. For seven days and seven nights, they don't say a word. And again, I think... They're struggling in their own thought life with trying to understand why this happened to their friend. Their minds are so preoccupied with that one driving question, why did Job go through all that he went through that any words of comfort were smothered in their minds by this perplexing question? Why is he suffering? How could this happen to our godly friend? And the one explanation that kept rising to the surface again and again, which was based upon their faulty theology, was it must be because he has committed great sin. He is under the judgment of God for great sin. God has not only afflicted him, God has abandoned him. And in their mind as they're sitting there trying to understand the suffering of their friend, their bad theology rises to their consciousness, this, this drumbeat of sin, sin, sin. The only way you can explain his suffering is he is guilty of deep, dark, terrible sin. 
And I think it's because they get there mentally that they don't have any words of comfort. Because now comfort is not appropriate. A harsh word of rebuke and repentance is all that comes from their mouth. Now this kind of an attitude, I think, indicates just the fact that they don't understand what's going on. And oftentimes we carry that attitude because we don't understand what's going on. Words of comfort, words of hope in their mind are inappropriate for Job. He doesn't need a word of comfort. He's in sin. And he needs to repent because of their view of retribution that God deals with us according to our deeds. And because good people are blessed and bad people are cursed, he is cursed, he has sinned, he needs to repent. And that's, all, that, that's basically what's controlling their thought life. So they're silent seven days and nights. No one speaking a word. Now, there are many reasons why God sends suffering and affliction into our lives. Many reasons. Some like Joseph, who suffer because in the providence of God, God will use him to provide food for his family and keep the, the chosen seed alive. In God's providence, he ordained his sufferings and brought good out of it. Sometimes we suffer for reasons that we don't understand, but God is going to use that to bless other people through our suffering. Other people suffer because of the, of the sins of other people. Not their own sins, but the sins of other people. Achan's family, they all died for the sin of Achan, for stealing the silver and the mantle and the gold. Sometimes we suffer because of the sins of other people. Sometimes we suffer for righteousness' sake, being persecuted for Jesus Christ, for standing for biblical values or the gospel. Others suffer in order to grow spiritually. God brings out His pruning shears and cuts off things in our life that we might bear more fruit. And sometimes people suffer due to their own sin. And it's true that true friendship will confront sin in others. That's a part of the sanctifying fellowship that we should have. But the problem is, in this case, there's no sin with Job that God is punishing him for. So they abandon trying to comfort him because he needs to repent. That's all they have in their theology. Suffering due to sin. Solution, repent. They rush to judgment. They don't listen to understand or to sympathize the heart issues that are going on. Their mind is made up before the defense is even given. And I think part of the application of this to us is don't be so quick to rush to judgment and be so quick to condemn when we don't know the heart of another person. In this case, they did not know Job's heart. They just 
took their theology and they assumed they understood and condemned him. But the heart of a man, heart of a woman, is a deep well. And how often we don't even understand our own hearts, much less this heart of someone else. But they come, they don't say a word. But once they start speaking, it's all sin, repent. You've committed sin, repent. Jeremiah tells us a heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And we're going to be quick to condemn others without really trying to investigate their heart. What's in the heart? We don't, it's, it's hard to understand the heart of someone else. And we have to be careful not to be like the friends of Job who rushed to judgment, jumped to a conclusion that he's guilty of sin without ever even trying to dig into the heart issue that's going on or understand the ways of God, much less. That's probably why the Apostle Paul warns the church at Corinth where there's a lot of divisions and issues going on when he says, therefore, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts and then each man's praise will come to him from God. I think Paul is saying, Being, be careful that you think you know someone's heart, their motives. Because a heart is hard to understand. It's hard for us to understand our own heart. So don't go on passing judgment. Wait for the Lord to come. He knows the heart. Justice will be served on that day. So they're silent for seven days and seven nights. No one speaking a word. Not a word of comfort. Not a word of encouragement. Job was as good as dead to them. He's a sinner. What can they say? So they sit in silence. Thankfully, they don't say some things that they shouldn't say, which are sometimes said when we go to someone who's suffering, they didn't speak out any empty platitudes that belittle the suffering and give a false hope. They didn't come up to Job and say, oh, Job, don't worry about it. It's all going to be fine. You're going to be back on your feet in no time. And sometimes we come with those kinds of empty platitudes which really belittle the suffering that they're going through. Too cavalier. And now this happens to be the end result for Job. We know that God's going to restore everything and it is going to be okay for him eventually. But oftentimes when we approach our suffering friends, we don't know the purpose of God. We don't know the will of God. Now these people may reason that a false hope is better than no hope at all. And I think when we're talking with people who are suffering, optimism is certainly good. It does give hope. But acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God's will is, is essential as well because we don't know the future. We don't know the outcome. So at least they didn't use empty platitudes like that, nor did they come with the uh, oftentimes typical charismatic babble 
that says, well, brother, if you just had enough faith, you'd be healed. They didn't do that either. They didn't come with a name it and claim it kind of theology because when tried and failed, when people are suffering and they try to gin up their faith to bleed the promises of God and God doesn't heal them, well, now they're totally disillusioned. God is unfaithful or I just don't have enough faith and so it can be very discouraging. So at least they didn't say that either. But they didn't say anything. Nothing, not a word to alleviate Job's pain and suffering. Again, their faulty assumptions rendered them really unable to help. There were no kind words. There's no words of love to come up and just say, I love you. There's no prayer offered for God's mercy, at least not what's mentioned in Scripture. There's no encouragement to trust in God, no hope given for the future, no digging around the broken foundation of Job's heart to pour in the cement of God's promises to hold him up and anchor him in God. Not a word. No comfort given. So that Job received none of the comfort like what David did in Psalm 23 when he said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, and thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Not a word of encouragement like that. No sharing of God's word. Now, granted, if this book was written around 2000 B.C., then their revelation was very limited. But for us today, Psalm 119, verse 50, David says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. But there is no word to encourage Job. Only silence, dead silence. And when they do open their mouth, they come with their guns blazing. Part of the mutual ministry of the body of Christ is to encourage one another, to support one another, to love one another, to help one another, to show sympathy and give comfort to those who are suffering within the body. And I think this places a premium on the, the importance of us as believers to take the responsibility to ourselves to make friends and to be a friend. We worship the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts the depressed and the downtrodden. But He often comforts the depressed and the downtrodden by using you and by using me to be a vessel of bringing that comfort to those who are struggling and suffering. But they are unable to comfort Job because of three reasons. Number one, they do not understand God. They don't understand the ways of God. Isaiah 55 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And they thought that when it came to God dishing out afflictions, He was a one-trick pony. 
It's always based on retribution. Job, God has issued you out afflictions because you have sinned. They basically put God in a box. And they have a distorted view of God. And their bad theology about God will make them unable to be a good counselor to their friend. So the first reason they were not good counselors is because they didn't understand God. Secondly, they don't understand Job. To be a good counselor, you need to understand the person you're, you're counseling. You need to try to understand their heart. You need to try to understand the circumstances. Now, we don't know why other people suffer, but we need to be careful of jumping to those false conclusions because we don't take the time to really understand the people we're trying to minister to. And they didn't take any time. They sat in silence. When it was their time to speak, their mind was already made up. So they don't understand the character of God. They don't understand the ways of God. That God uses many different means in sanctifying His people. Many different kinds of sufferings for many different reasons. But they've put God in a box. And secondly, they don't understand their friend. Now we know from the text that He has not sinned. He's not being punished for sin. But they don't know that. They falsely accused him because they didn't know his heart. And they're not listening to him either. When he's pouring out his heart through the book, they're not hearing it. They're not listening. Their mind is made up. They don't know Job. And that's why they're not able to be a good counselor. And thirdly, they don't know themselves. They don't know their own blind spots. They don't know their own self-righteous attitude. They don't know their own bad theology, which makes their counsel defective and infected with a poisonous philosophy that does their friend no good. Their good intentions, they were good. We can, again, applaud them for that. But their good intentions turn sour and again, unfortunately, will drive Job to the very brink of despair. And by the way, that's exactly where Satan wants people who are suffering. He wants them to despair. He wants them to feel that God has rejected them. He wants them to feel there is no hope. And when Satan latches hold to a suffering heart and begins to pump those thoughts into their head and into their mind, that's when he can bring about his, his worst work in driving people deep down to the darkness of despair. In one of Calvin's sermons, he said in response, let us therefore beseech God to strengthen us in every way so that we will be able to repulse such as assaults by Satan and to find trust and hope in God 
that he will work this evil, this suffering for our good and gain hope and comfort from God. This is really the key to comfort and affliction. You won't find it in yourself. You won't find it in your misery. You won't find it in your self-pity. You'll find it when you find refuge for your soul in the Lord. That's where the comfort's going to come from. Job's faith amazingly is real. It is God-given. It is God-sustained. But such faith like our faith can be beaten. It can be battered. It can be knocked down. It can be trampled upon. It can suffer. But by the grace of God, the Lord will sustain it to the end. And this is the kind of faith that the Apostle Paul had when he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. And regardless of the severity of his suffering or or our suffering, every believer can gain comfort from God's promises and the eternal weight of glory awaiting us in heaven. That's why right after the passage I just read in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul will go on to say this, Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. And once I I usually get to that verse, I'm just, I'm amazed. I, I think if I didn't know how the rest of it ended, I would say, that's amazing, Paul. Your outer man is decaying, but your inner man is being renewed day by day. How does that happen? But thankfully, he tells us in verse 17, he says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. And that's where he gained his hope. That's where he gained his encouragement Though the outer man was being decayed and beaten and torn up, his inner man was growing younger because his his hope was fixed, his refuge was fixed upon the Lord. And the hope of glory that awaits every sufferer in this life, that one day it'll all be made new in the presence of God. We'll actually see a faint glimmer of this same hope in the book of Job as he's struggling to try to make sense of his suffering, we will see faintly, but it's there, a hope of, of, of the glory to come, a hope of, of seeing God with his eyes. And it's part of that incredible promise and hope that he has, which sustains him in spite of all the bad counsel that his good intending friends were giving to him. Well, may the Lord help us all to 
learn from these three friends the importance of being a friend, the importance of showing up and being there when the time is right, the importance of silence when that's appropriate, but also the importance of trying to encourage to build up a foundation under their suffering of hope in God, trust in God, finding your refuge in God, and ultimately the hope of glory that Jesus Christ died on the cross and suffered and paid the penalty for our sins that we might know that precious gift of eternal life, forgiveness, and heaven forever. So may the Lord help us to be better friends. Help us to learn to care and love for one another and encourage and care for one another because this is what it means to be in the family of faith. So Lord, help us, we pray. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do uh, thank You, Lord, again for these three friends. Kind of a mixed bag, but they do show sympathy, but they're unable to comfort because they don't understand Your ways, O God, as mysterious as they often are. They didn't understand their friend, the nature of his suffering, what was in his heart, and they didn't even understand themselves. But Lord, we know that friendship is such a blessing. It's so important. And yet, Father, oftentimes we all fail in this regard. But just teach us the value of this blessed gift of friendship. And help us all, Lord, for Your glory, for Your honor, to be friends, to know how to comfort and sympathize with those who are suffering, and to encourage them in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, bless us today, we pray, in this regard, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.